Today we come to the conclusion of 1 Peter chapter 4 in our preaching series through this epistle. And that brings us to the conclusion of an extensive passage on suffering, Christians and their suffering, which, as you know by now, is a major theme in Peter's first epistle. In fact, that theme is mentioned at least once in every chapter of the five chapters in this book. But in chapter 5, it's only a brief and passing reference, and really, when we come to the end of chapter 4, we have basically covered all of the things that Peter wants us to know about the Christian and suffering. And in our text for today, Peter introduces an unexpected element into consideration, one that we probably would never have realized. But Peter tells us here that Christian suffering needs to be understood in light of the final day of judgment. That's what's going on. Look at verses 17 through 19 of chapter 4. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And in these three verses, concluding verses of 1 Peter, I trust that God will enable us to see, number one, the true nature of suffering, verse 17, number two, the difficulty of salvation, verse 18, and finally, instructions for the sufferer in verse 19. And Peter is going to tell us the core truth of why we suffer, what's really going on. Now, there are a number of levels of truth, and all of them are correct. Many of God's people suffer persecution. That certainly is true around the world today. That has been true down through the centuries and is beginning to be more apparent in the United States of America today. And we say, why do Christians suffer persecution from the ungodly? And the most obvious answer is because of the ungodly's animosity against Christ and against the followers of Christ. And that answer is absolutely true. Christians suffer all kinds of hardships and difficulties and trials in this world that may not be related to persecution from unbelievers. And we say, what is the reason for that? And an obvious answer that can be given is, because we live in a cursed and fallen world. Because the curse was placed upon the earth in the Garden of Eden and has not yet been lifted. And so God's people live in the same world of sin and suffering as do unbelievers, and we are not immune from those things. And that would be a correct answer, too. But today I think we're going to see the truth behind the truths. Why do God's people suffer? Because God has started His judgment that will culminate in the final day of judgment. Look at that true nature of suffering in verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
Peter talks about God's preliminary judgments and then about the final judgment. And God's preliminary judgments are related to the final judgment. And God's preliminary judgments are what is going on now in the suffering of God's children. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. That opening word for is a connecting particle that connects this statement to everything that has gone before, certainly from verse 12 onward, that is the extended nature about suffering, and really concludes everything that Peter has said about suffering in his book up until this time. And this connects to the rest of that, to that which has gone before, this subject of suffering, and it explains it. Why the suffering? For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. The time has come. A word that means decisive, crucial moment or season. And in this case, it is certainly a season, not a brief moment. It is now the appointed season for judgment to begin, is what Peter is saying. And the word judgment can be used in a couple of different ways. It can be used of a final verdict. We make a judgment. We make a decision. And this same word is often used that way in the Greek language. But here it does not mean a final verdict, but rather a judicial process. And that's another way the same word is used. In other words, the act of judging, the deliberations that go into the final conclusion, which has not yet been reached, the evaluation that is going on, that will culminate either in approval or disapproval, will culminate in discipline or condemnation. And those are the various options. And that's what's going on now. God is evaluating, God is in the act of judging the house of God. Not the world, but the house of God. A phrase that obviously means the church. It's similar to the language that Peter used in chapter 2 to describe the church. When he said in verse 5, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A spiritual house. And now he talks about the house of God or the household of God. The language is almost identical, if not exactly identical, to some of the things that Paul has said. As for example, in 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God the pillar and ground of the truth. No ambiguity about what the house of God is in 1 Timothy 3.15, and there should be no ambiguity about what the house of God is in 1 Peter 4.17. The time has come, says Peter, for the judging, evaluating, sifting, sorting, approving, disapproving, disciplining, condemning process to begin, and it will begin in the house of God. And that phrase is really more literally begins from the house of God. The Greek preposition would be more accurately translated from. 
And that further emphasizes this idea that the judgment begins there, namely at the house of God, and then spreads beyond there. It begins with God's people, it spreads to others. God has already begun judging the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God will yet judge those who are outside the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now isn't that a surprising answer to the question, why do God's people suffer? We wouldn't have thought of that, and that hasn't been mentioned very frequently in the Scriptures, but here it is, and it's so clear and plain that it's impossible to miss. And what is going on now for the people of God is God's refining process. If it begins with us first, first the sheep, then the goats, first the purifying fire, then the consuming fire. And Peter has referred to this suffering of God's people as a purifying fire when he introduced this subject clear back in chapter 1. That's the kind of language he used. You remember it in uh, verse verse uh, 7. That the genuineness, 1 Peter 1, 7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Bringing to our minds the analogy of the refiner's furnace and the fire that is applied to that. And how that fire heats up the the mixture, the, the gold ore, and separates the dross from the gold. And refines whatever is placed into that fire. And that's the kind of language that Peter continues to use here. And really, that's what he says in the beginning of this extended passage in chapter 4 and verse 12, when he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. And now that phrase, fiery trial, linked back to what he said in chapter 1 about the refiner's fire purifying the gold makes perfect sense. This, this fire, this, this fiery trial which is to try God's children is the refiner's fire in which he is purifying sorting, separating in the church among the people of God. Christians are being purified and strengthened. Sins are being removed. Holiness is being increased. Empty professors who claim to be Christians but are not are being exposed and separated out. Churches are being reformed. All of that is going on. That's what God is doing now. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first. Peter probably has several Old Testament passages on judgment in mind. Because for Peter and all the Christians he was writing to, the Old Testament was their Bible. So they no doubt read passages like this one, Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a rider's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. 
Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin in my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Description of judgment in the prophecy of Ezekiel. Or the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 13, verses 7, 8, and 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, This is my people. And each one will say, The Lord is my God. You see the sifting, separating nature of the judgment, and how even the people of God are included in the judgment. Or listen to these words in the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like a launderer's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Some put that prophecy at the second coming of Christ. I think there's good evidence to believe that it's intended to be understood as the first coming of Christ. And probably links very closely with what we see here in First Peter. The judgment has already begun. The Lord has come to His holy temple. He is already applying His refiner's fire. Judgment has come. It must begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first. If it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If judgment is difficult for the people of God, then what will it be like for the unbeliever? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is obvious. It will be far, far, far worse. First a purifying fire, then a consuming fire. First a purifying fire for the people of God, then a consuming fire for those who do not obey the gospel of God. If it begins with us and seems severe to us, will it not be much more severe 
upon those who do not obey the gospel of God. If God's holiness is such that it requires that he judge his own dear blood-bought children, what will be the outcome for those who continually refuse the gospel of God? The gospel of God. They're not just rejecting any old thing. They're not just rejecting man-made religion. The gospel of God. It is His gospel. See the seriousness of the guilt of those who continually reject the gospel of God. And what we are seeing in this verse is that the Christian suffering is the beginning of God's judgment. For believers, it is a refining process to remove dross and reveal God's gold, the gold that He has put within us, the gold that He created, the life that He has given, the righteousness which He has given. All else must be purged away and leaving behind that which is God's own. And so the dross will be removed and reveal God's gold. Job's, one commentator said, the hostility of unbelievers is both an evidence of their condition and a test to try believers. Those who reject the gospel will suffer much more later than believers do now. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And that brings us then to a statement regarding the difficulty of salvation in verse 18. For we read now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, Peter has quoted the text. He is incorporating an Old Testament text as a text of support and the further explanation of what he has just said. And he is citing Proverbs 11.31 from the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Bible that Peter read and preached out of and quoted almost all of the time. We can find maybe one exception to that where he seems to have quoted directly from the Hebrew. But almost always he quotes from the Greek version of the Old Testament. But here's what Proverbs 11.31 says in my New King James. It says, If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? If the righteous will be recompensed, that is, will receive for what they have done, If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? Do you see the parallel with what Peter has said in verse 17? If judgment begins at the house of God, then what will the ungodly and the sinner do? If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? But of course you see that the Old Testament text in Proverbs is dealing with matters that pertain to this world. Temporal issues, not eternal ones. Peter borrows the text, but he applies it to eternal judgments. But it bridges the gap because he tells us that judgment must begin at the house of God now upon the earth in in this 
moment of time, in this season. So it begins temporally, but it ends eternally. And it kind of bridges the gap between earth and heaven, between time and eternity, between now and hereafter. But Peter says the same principle applies. If it is difficult for the righteous upon the earth, that's the idea here, then think how much more difficult it is going to be for the sinner. The difficulty of salvation is what Peter is saying. That's the way he's applying the text. If the, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, is saved with difficulty, is barely saved. We talk sometimes about being saved by the skin of your teeth. If the righteous one is saved by the skin of your teeth, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? The difficulty of salvation. We shouldn't be a surprise that Peter talks like this. There are many statements in the Bible like this. Didn't Jesus say, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it? And he talked about striving to enter in at the narrow gate. Didn't the apostles employ language like this? What did Paul say in Acts 14.21? And when they had preached the gospel, or had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We shall be saved with difficulty, with hardship. With trials. Unjust persecutions, painful trials, divine purgings all come to the children of God as they tread that narrow way on the way to heaven. In other words, it's hard to be a Christian, it's difficult to be one. At times, it seems to be impossible. There are greater hardships for Christians than there are for unbelievers, you understand. That's what the Bible makes clear. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ does not make things easier necessarily in this life. It will help you with some of the problems that you have caused for yourself by sin. It will help you to deal with them in a biblical way and help you to stop them so you don't keep... Uh, piling up these things that have such such uh, great damage in your life. But you are adding a whole new set of difficulties. You are, you are adding to your life the reproach of Christ, and that's a very real reproach and will bring great hardships. And you are adding the purgings, the purifyings, the, the father-to-child disciplines of your heavenly Father, And that all gets added after you come to Christ. That's on top of the normal trials of life that all of us have just because we are human beings, sons and daughters of Adam, living in a cursed world. It's very difficult to be a Christian. 
But if it's difficult to be a Christian, if it's difficult to successfully tread the narrow way and thus to arrive in heaven where we will be safe and all of these things will be behind us, if that is done only with great difficulty, then how much greater will be the difficulty of the sinner, the one who rejects the word of God, the ungodly and the sinner, as he's described here by Peter. The ungodly means one who has no reverence for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They are ungodly, unmindful of God. They are not worshiping God. They're not paying attention to God. They haven't submitted themselves to the authority of God. They are not living their lives with God in mind. What will the ungodly and the sinner, the one who willfully pursues sin, willfully pursues those things he knows by his God-given conscience are wrong? What is he going to do when the judgment turns from the house of God and turns toward the ungodly and the sinner? Perhaps it would be helpful to read 1 Peter 4.18 and a couple of other translations. The New American Standard says, And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved... What will become of the godless man and the sinner? And the NIV says, And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That's what Peter's saying. What he's telling us is that the Christian life is difficult by God's design. That's why it's important that we don't misrepresent what the Christian life really is, as the Bible reveals it to us. That's why it's important that we don't minimize the hardships of the Christian life in evangelism, as is often done. Well, if you'll just trust Jesus, then everything that's that's difficult and hard and and distasteful in your life now, that's all going to get better. Everything will be wonderful. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Well, there's certainly a sweet communion for those who are growing in grace and drawing close to the Lord. But I don't know that every day is going to be sweeter than the day before. Some of them are going to be a whole lot more difficult than anything you've ever known before. That's the truth. That's the truth. That's what the Bible says. So don't misrepresent the divine purpose for believers. God, by His design, has told us these things. Don't don't consider it a strange thing when you are... Tried when this fiery trial comes to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. The Bible tells us this over and over again. How do we miss it? How do we ignore it? How do we set it aside? How do we act like it isn't there? Well, because sometimes we'd rather believe what isn't true than we would to believe what is true. But how much better to know and understand what is true and to believe it? Because that's the only way we're going to be prepared for the trials that will come. For the judgment that has already begun at the house of God. How are we going to be prepared for that if we don't expect it? If we don't think that's what God has planned? If we don't think that's the way things ought to be? If we think the trials that we're enduring shouldn't be there and there's something something uh, within us that that is uh, wrong, that if we could only correct it, then we wouldn't have these kind of trials. You didn't read that in the Bible. Where'd you get that? If that's your thinking, if that's what we teach people, then they will be unprepared and often defeated as they tread the narrow way. How much better to be knowledgeable 
and therefore to cooperate with God in this process, to understand what he's doing. He's purifying, he's refining, he's purging. Let's cooperate with him in the process. Let's, as as much as it hurts, and we probably don't uh, race to it, race to these things with joy, nevertheless, let's understand them and cooperate with God and and, uh, look for how to to, uh, make this process more effective, to get the job done. This purging process. To be dependent upon the Lord through our trials. So that we can benefit from our trials. So that God's purpose in our trials to purge out the dross. To purge out the sin. To make us more holy. To make us more Christ-like. To make more of our total life the gold of His, His divine work. Rather than the dross of our old Adam. To make that more and more His gold and less and less our old man. Let's let's cooperate with him and benefit in this process. And let's remember that the unbeliever's situation is a whole lot worse than ours. It is true that in this life sometimes, oftentimes, the Christian's life is more difficult than the unbeliever. Get that through your head. I don't know how many times I say it. Some of you act like you really just don't believe that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible has told us from beginning to end. How many times do you find in the Psalms someone lamenting, why are the righteous suffering and the wicked are prospering? That's what Peter's talking about. In this life, The child of God will often, we might say usually, we can't make an exact rule for every individual, but in this life the child of God will often have greater difficulties than the unbeliever by God's design. But that's just now. What will the ungodly do in the day of judgment? That's when things are going to be so, 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 so much worse for him. You don't want to be there in that day. If that's the choice, give me Christ and give me trials. The fire of God's holiness is so intense that even the righteous feel pain in its discipline. But the sinner will experience a fire of eternal destruction. If God judges his own dear children, what will judgments be like for those who reject Christ? If God meets out assorted temporal judgments upon his own dear children, how can the wicked imagine they will escape the severity of God's justice? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That brings us, thirdly, therefore, to instructions for the sufferer, for the Christian who is, who is enduring hardships. Verse 19. Therefore, this is a word of conclusion. Therefore, wherefore, consequently, that word could be translated consequently. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Let those who suffer according to the will of God. 
perhaps a reference to those who suffer for their own sins. In verse 15, remember, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evil body, or an evildoer rather, or a busybody in other people's matters. If you suffer for those things, you brought it on yourself. And you know that you are doing that which is contrary to the will of God. But if you are following Christ and obeying His will, not perfectly, of course, but we know nobody does it perfectly. But here you are trying your best to please the Lord, follow Him, obey Him, and you are having all kinds of difficulties. That's suffering according to the will of God. And that's a foundational understanding. Suffering is part of the divine will of God for His children. Now, how many times have I said it in this sermon? And here we say it again. Suffering is part, thankfully not all, but part of the divine will of God for His children. God designs for us to suffer. God wills for us to suffer. God assures that we will suffer. God plans our suffering. And so understanding that, because Peter has already told us that, what should we do? And here's the exhortation, two things. Entrust yourself fully to God and continue to do good. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, number one, commit their souls to Him, and number two, in doing good as to a faithful Creator. What should you do? Number one, entrust yourself fully to God. Commit your soul to Him. It's a banking term. It's a term that means a deposit for safekeeping. Hand over something valuable into the care of another. Hand over your souls, which in Peter's usage here means your life, yourself, all of you. Hand yourself over to God. Entrust yourself into His care. Entrust yourself to Him for safekeeping. And continue to do good. What's... Our first temptation, one of our first temptations when suffering and trial comes into our life that we weren't fully prepared for, didn't expect, and there's no way to be always prepared for every one of them and to expect them all. We don't know the future. We don't know what's coming. But what's the first thing that we often do? Well, I guess reading my Bible isn't doing any good. I guess praying isn't doing any good. I'll stop that. I guess going to church isn't doing any good. I'll stop that. I guess fellowshipping with the saints of God isn't doing any good. I'll stop that. No, 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 no. When trials come into your life, commit your soul into the hands of God for safekeeping. And while you're doing that, continue to do good. Continue to do the things you know to be right. Continue to do the things you know to be good. In spite of hostility... In spite of suffering, in spite of disappointment, keep on doing what you know to be good. This idea of doing good actually has been used by Peter a number of times. And if we want to know what doing good is, we could start by just looking at the times Peter has already told us what it is. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. What was that? Submitting to kings and governors and civil authority. That's doing good. See, it goes back to verse 13. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
So you keep on submitting to civil authority. You don't become a rebel. You don't become a revolutionary. You don't become a lawbreaker, except in those rare instances where the civil authorities command you to violate the law of God. But you make yourself, as a Christian, the most law-abiding citizen in your community. That's what it means to do good. Now look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Now speaking to servants who are mistreated by their masters, slaves actually, mistreated by their masters. Verse 20, For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. In other words, endure injustices patiently and humbly. That's doing good. That's doing good. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good. That's doing good. Chapter 3, verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Wives being properly and biblically submitted to their husbands. That's doing good. You say, well, I thought it was going to church and reading the Bible and passing out tracts. Well, that that too, but I'm just pointing out what Peter said is doing good. Let's get the foundation things in place here. Uh, Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And that's linked to verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Just do like Christ said, when people bless you or when people curse you, bless them in return. When people do wrong to you, do something nice and good for them in return. That's doing good. Boy, that's hard, isn't it? Whoa, that's hard. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 3. For it is better if, if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Right back to this idea of suffering for doing good and continuing to do good even, even as you suffer. And he declares something that helps us, helps us do this. It gives us something to fasten our faith upon when he ends up the verse by saying that we commit ourselves to God as to a faithful creator. A reminder that God is the creator. That is, he is the creator of all that you see in this universe. That reminds us of his wisdom, that he could design a universe like this. And that reminds us of his power, that he could create a universe like this. Now, if he's a God like that, with that kind of wisdom, that kind of power, isn't he the kind of person that you can trust your soul to for safekeeping this deposit of something valuable into the hands of someone else. You want that someone else to be trustworthy if you're going to deposit something valuable into the safekeeping of somebody else. You want it to be somebody with a good track record, a good reputation. Well, you'll never find anyone superior to God, the faithful creator who has so much wisdom, he can design a universe like this. So much power, he can create that. And furthermore, he gave you your life. He's the creator. Don't you think the Lord who gave you your life can be trusted with your life? Duh. 
Let it sink in. And he's not only creator, but he's caretaker. He's a faithful creator. A faithful creator. A trustworthy creator. The very quality that we need to commit our souls to him. A faithful creator. That means he actively sustains what he created. He takes care of what he created. He's not an absentee clockwinder as the deist used to conceive of God, that he created the world, wound up the clock, walked off somewhere, he's occupied with other things. No, he's a faithful creator who is intricately involved in every detail of his creation, every part of his creation, every detail of our lives. He is sustaining and bringing to perfection that which he created. And he's wise enough to do it and powerful enough to do it. So trust him. And what comfort to realize that our suffering, whatever it may be, is perfectly controlled by the all-wise, all-powerful, loving and gracious God that we call our Heavenly Father because he is our Heavenly Father. Our suffering is not senseless. It's not random. It's not accidental. It's not out of control. It's part of God's design. It's controlled. It's limited. It's purposeful. And when we understand that, then we ought to be able to commit ourselves unreservedly to Him. We ought to be able to continue doing good. We ought to be able to suffer in a God-honoring way. Now, just a couple of things before I conclude here. I think there's a strong implication here about the nature of the final judgment for unbelievers that needs to be mentioned. Peter emphasizes that the unbeliever's judgment is going to be far, far, far worse from any suffering that the Christian will ever have to endure, that any Christian will ever have to endure. The Christian who has suffered the most in Life, the, the Christian who has suffered the most in history, if you can pick out some Christian whose suffering has just been way, 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 way more than anybody else, and think about the magnitude of his suffering, you can be sure that the suffering of every unbeliever is going to be far, 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 far greater in magnitude than his. Now, what's the implication of that? Well, to me, the implication of that is that the suffering of the unbeliever must be eternal suffering. If annihilation of the wicked is correct, it's hard to see how that the wicked endure far greater suffering than God's children. Because in this life, it's true, as we've already mentioned, that some unbelievers suffer far less than some believers. Now, there's plenty of scriptures to teach the eternality of the lake of fire. We read one in Revelation chapter 20 this morning that made it very clear that the lake of fire is eternal. It's not temporary. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. The second death is not the end for those who are subject to it. But this text in itself would be sufficient to indicate that. The 
judgment that falls upon the unbeliever is so much more severe than any suffering that ever comes to the children of God that the only way I could understand that is in terms of eternal suffering. And there is, as I suppose you know, a renewed interest in various theories that deny that. I got an email recently from someone with a several-page treatise explaining why that the wicked do not suffer eternally. And it's wrong. It's just wrong. It's contrary to Scripture in so many ways. And this text is just another of many that support and explain that. But the final lesson from this is that we need to focus upon our soul salvation as our greatest concern. You don't want to be one of those who is purged out of the church. You say, well, nobody who is a true child of God who is in the true church, the invisible church, can be purged out. Right, I agree. But there is this purging, this separating that not only purifies the true people of God, but exposes those who who have made an empty profession. And there may be some like that in here today. I don't know. I don't see the hearts. But the kindest thing God can do, if that's your your case, is to show you that. Because you'll never repent and seek Christ as long as you think that you're all right, that you're safe. But if God the Holy Spirit shows you that you are outside of Christ and not truly saved, then count that your greatest blessing that He did so and immediately turn from your sins and embrace Christ for your soul's salvation. Shall we pray? Father, help us who are your children to learn to suffer in a godlike way. Help us, O Lord, to view our sufferings in the light of your word and not in the light of myth of error, of wrong teaching. Help us, O Lord, to honor you by cooperating with you in those purgings, those prunings, those disciplines that you bring into our lives, painful as they often are. O Lord, may we understand the purpose of them. May we desire the result of them. May we cooperate in the goal of them. And may we honor you by entrusting our lives into the care of the God that we fully and completely trust. Help us to do so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.